Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, as galleries in London reopen amid a pandemic, we ask, what does the new normal look like for the art world? In case you were wondering if we were going to report on the toppling of statues of slavers and other colonial era figures this week, we'll explore that in depth in next week's podcast. But this week, I take my first steps in an art gallery for three months and talk to Stefan Ratibor and Millicent Wilner at the Gagosian Gallery in London as they plan to reopen on the 15th of June. We also look at ways that the galleries across the British capital have joined together to share information and plan for the future. Is this a new, kinder era for commercial galleries? Joe Stella Sawitska from the Goodman Gallery offers her views. And in the latest in our series of lonely works behind the doors of closed museums, the artist Deborah Roberts explores Benny Andrews' No More Games in the Museum of Modern Art, New York. Before we begin, a reminder that you can read the art newspaper anywhere, anytime with our iPhone and iPad app. Visit the App Store, search for the art newspaper and then you can install the free app. If you're a subscriber, all the app content is available as part of your subscription. Now, on 15th of June, many of London's commercial galleries are due to open for the first time in three months. Most of the galleries will be open by appointment only and have been working together on a giant WhatsApp group to coordinate safety plans and share information. I went to the Gagosian Gallery Grosvenor Hill in London to meet Stefan Ratibor and Millicent Wilner, two of the gallery's directors, to see their new show, Crushed, Cast, Constructed, with sculptures by John Chamberlain, Urs Fischer and Charles Ray, and to see how they've prepared to welcome back visitors as the coronavirus lockdown eases. I'm standing outside the Gagosian Gallery in Grosvenor Hill in Mayfair, and to give you a sense of how novel this feels, I haven't even been to Mayfair for three months and been working from home. I've had the privilege of being able to work from home in a bubble and suddenly here I am about to cross the threshold of a gallery for the first time since the middle of March when all the galleries across London closed. And I have to admit I'm feeling something which I don't often feel before I go into a gallery. Normally I might have a sense of excitement or anticipation ahead of seeing work by an artist who I admire, or perhaps a sense of dread if it's an artist I admire a bit less. But one of the things I'm really conscious of before I set foot through the door is that I'm nervous. And that's because galleries, normally such welcoming and in a way sort of ordinary part of my experience as a writer and podcaster are suddenly utterly unusual after not having been to one for three months. So yes, I'm feeling a little nervous, but in a way I can't wait to be again in a space with actual physical works of art. Stefan and and Millicent, I'm aware that I'm in a gallery for the first time in a long time and it's, it's really exciting to be here. But I'm also aware that here I am on my microphone, you two are socially distanced from me and you've got, you're both speaking into your phones. While it's something approaching a return to normal, it's not normal, is it? I I, I think this is what we would probably call the new normal. The old normal will take a long time to come back and we'll have to see in what way it will come back. But I think, I hope, I certainly hope it will. But, you know, we've tried very hard in the last few days and weeks to prepare the gallery to be as welcoming to visitors while also being safe and where people are able to keep socially distant, where our people are provided with masks and gloves and hand sanitizer to follow the rules or the guidances that we've been given by the government. And um, we're lucky enough that we have the facilities to do that. Um, So we're really pleased to be able to show real art. You know, after three months of virtuality, if that's the right word, I find it incredibly uplifting to be standing amongst giant sculptures now. 
So, t- so tell us then, Stefan, has this been a long-planned show or is this something that you've put together precisely to respond, in a way, to the fact that we've just been staring at screens and suddenly here we are, surrounded by massive sculptures? Well, um, I would be uh, lying if I was saying that this is a response to the situation. This has been a show that took many, many months to prepare, but I think, as sometimes happens in these situations, it seems to strike a great chord with the time that we're in and it feels the physicality of the works that is surrounding us are very... You know, overwhelming in the best possible way. You know, it's not, and, and I think that particularly um, these three artists that we chose, um, I think, show that. You know, we have a wonderful 1967 sculpture by John Chamberlain, galvanized steel, it's a very rare thing. Um, we have these three giant Oris Fischer sculptures, which are called clays, um, and they basically, um, he would take a lump of clay, squeeze it in his hand, create a completely random shape, and then blow it up. This is the crushed sculpture, this is the cast sculpture, and then the constructed sculpture is by Charles Ray, the famous tractor from 2004. And it, um, it is a, scu- a tractor which, he had, which is from an, an ancient thing from, I think it's the 30s or 40s, which was lay abandoned in a field in the San Fernando Valley where he always drove past it and then one day, after decades of driving past it, bought it, dragged it back to his studio, took it apart and cast every single item and put it back together. So it's this sort of destruction, reconstruction. The, the mind boggles at the practicalities of it because, um, as you say, you had planned this show, so therefore you, you were fortunate to a certain degree they must have been in the country because, of course, one of the things is shipping is disrupted. The whole international networks of the art world are disrupted, right? Correct. But these works were, as it happened, in the country and in the building. They weren't installed completely, but they were in the building. Um, the other two shows um, at uh, Davy Street and Britannia Street have, I mean, particularly in Davy Street, the Malaparte furniture has arrived 10 days ago. And there are trucks running, um, but it's, 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 everything is much more complicated, of course. Um, and the Britannia Street show also, it's a much more performative experience exhibition, which I think also strikes the current mood extraordinarily, um, but it would, um, that was done, it was a lot of, you know, installing of uh, environments rather than, it's, it's a performative show, so that was, didn't require that much shipping, if you like. But Although those works some, were yeah. also uh, already here, so um, you know, where we've shipped we've shipped as locally as possible the, the Malaparte furniture came from Italy, um, but as Stefan says, you know, everything moving and, and installing is, is certainly complicated. What about your gallery staff? Because I'm sure Gary Waterston won't, won't mind me saying this. He's, you know, he and I negotiated me coming here today and made sure it was all legal and everything was all above board and everything. Um, but Gary can't come to the gallery. So I, 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 I was conscious that you know, there are strict rules that you are following. Hugely strict rules. I mean, we have to very, very meticulously keep visitors as well as staff safe and, and adhere to the rules. So the, 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 this door here, which connects the gallery to the back of house, if you like. It's not sealed, but it's, it's sort of metaphysically sealed, so we are not supposed to... Once, If you're working in an office, you're supposed to come around the outside and visit the gallery as a visitor with the rules that apply to a visitor. So if I'm meeting you here, we have to follow the rules. Up there, we are divided the team into three groups, and um, they have to work in alternate weeks so that there isn't, that there's a minimal risk of infection. But I think it, it will work well. Also, the idea with the separate teams is that, you know, we stay in a bubble. Um, and that if something happens within a bubble, you then have two other uh, sort of uh, teams that can, can come in. Um, so we're all very strict about our schedules. Um, but that being said, everyone is so excited to come back to work. We've all obviously been working from home, and I, for one, find I work even more than I normally do, which is, is <laughs> a lot anyway. Um, it's, it's very hard to sort of switch off when you're working from home. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of enthusiasm to be with the art, to be, you know, with our family of, of colleagues that we, you know, have worked together with for years. And, and so there's a lot of enthusiasm to return. But it'll be strange, as you describe yourself coming in today, it'll be the new normal 
will take some getting used to. But go coming into a gallery, you know, we're not like a big museum with bookshops, cafes, and queues. So it's 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 easier to control the flow of people than it would be at Tate Modern. You know, I mean. How tightly are you controlling the movement of people? I'm aware that we're in the room with the three Urs Fischer sculptures here. There's a lot of space around them. But how many people are you allowing into this space? I think technically there shouldn't be more than 15. And um, if there are 15 people in the space, we will. you can call in and book an appointment. But if you come and you're to your appointment, you're let in, but if you come and you just come off the, road, off the street and there is too many people in the space, you might be asked to wait a few minutes. But I, I, I'm not predicting that to be hugely complicated. I mean, we are, we are very happy to be able to welcome lots of people, but it's, I think it'll be okay. Tell me about the appointments, because, of course, one of the great things about a more democratised gallery visiting experience in London and other cities across the world recently is that you know there has been a sense in which many commercial galleries are more like museums you can walk in off the street and pretty much everyone can feel comfortable but um, obviously you're now operating an appointment system you are one of the reasons you can do this is for commercial reasons museums can't open yet because because of a different set of rules for those kind of spaces you are a commercial space so how are you operating the appointment system are you prioritizing collectors no it's entirely open we, we encourage people to make appointments but it's not essential so it gives us information it gives us you know an idea of of you know how many people may be looking to come in at a particular time but as stefan said we'll gauge it in the time and it sort of live as as people are coming through those so a galleries. student can make an appointment Absolutely. just as much as a- or you could just show up you know i'm predicting there to be we, we, we hopefully people will come but I think it'll be fine if you show up. You might have to wait five minutes or so, but I think it should be okay. But if, you know, I mean, if a school group wishes to come, you know, we'd have to block out an hour, and during that time we'd be full, but we'd need to know how many students are in the group and, and how they, they, they need to be aware of the rules and the distancing procedures. But we're really wanting to make it work for everyone. You know, I think that's what we are. We are a walk-in place. You know, there's no tickets. There's no. I mean, the booking thing is just for convenience rather than for. Um, uh, you know, we're not selling tickets here, so it's it's, it's more of a so that you know that you can come in if you want to come in. Yeah. I look forward to the day where we have school groups coming back no, me in. Too, actually, no, but I, mean, I think that's I just think when a bigger yeah. group comes at the same time. You know, um, but I think that we're a certain way away from that. Tell me about the commercial side of it then, because. You've had now three months where you haven't had galleries open. Collectors will have been getting in touch, no doubt. How much do you sense that the physical reality of exhibitions in galleries is still utterly crucial to Gagosian as a business as opposed to, you know, online viewing rooms and all that side of it? I think we've made the, the best of, of the situation and um, obviously nothing replaces the physical experience of being with art. It's, it's you know, it's a visceral uh, process, um, you know, to confront an object, to confront a painting and to see how you react to it. Um, that being said, we have a very strong online platform um, with various uh, sort of aspects to it. Um, we started something called Spotlight very near the beginning of, of um, lockdown which really was highlighting and celebrating particular artists who, because of the situation, had exhibitions that were either postponed or cancelled. And we would highlight one artist, one work by that artist for one week. And the uptake of that has been phenomenal, both commercially, but also in terms of the appeal and interest and and wider uh, curiosity about those artists' work. But also a huge amount of work went into those spotlight projects where we, we shot films about the artists in their studio, engaging with the work, trying to... You know, it was a, a wonderful experience to add that to the, to the dialogue out there. But what I wanted to what, add to what your question and what Millie said is that, you know, our responsibility, of course, is also to our artists. You know, we need to show their work. And I think this is why you do need a physical gallery. You know, you won't be able to exist representing an artist's work only virtually. I mean, I think the artists won't like it in the long run. They want people to engage with their work physically, and I we totally, of course, understand and respect that. So we've been working globally as much as possible to enable that. You know, we opened in Hong Kong about a month ago, nearly, 
um, and in, not quite, maybe three weeks, and in Paris two weeks ago, Geneva also. So slowly, even Rome is up and running. So I think things are, um, you know, the new normal, <laughs> which is nothing like the old normal, you know. Nothing's normal, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm pleased you talked about the artists because I wanted to bring that out because artists, it seems to me this is been, that in a way, in the art world, the people who are most affected by all this are the artists because it's, it's not just the artists here and um, their representation through you, but there are museum shows which are being cancelled left, right and centre. I wonder if you could tell us something about the support network that you've had to provide for artists, because you must have had a lot of artists, on, on the one hand, making work, but also just planning for these major events in their careers. And could you tell us something about what it's been like to have an artist roster and, and, and to, to deal with that? I mean, in many cases, the shows are postponed as opposed to cancelled. So that's obviously the best case scenario and, and people learn to be patient. I mean, the, the sort of, in some ways, artists are well suited to the situation we're in. A lot of them work in a solitary way in a studio and a lot of them are in their studios working and it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the situation we've been in um, and what kind of work comes out of that. I'm sure it'll be interesting. Yeah, but of course, what you say is absolutely right. You know, many, many shows, you know, opened and then closed two days later. I mean, you know, that extraordinary Warhol show at Tate or the Titian show at the National Gallery. I mean, these shows take 10 years to put together and they have to end when they end. I mean, it's just, there's this Richter show in New York, which was open for a week and it's ending. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Indeed. Um, I'd, I'd really like to talk about this idea that there's, there's more of a collegiate feel among the galleries in London, I presume more globally. Can you say something about the kind of ways in which that has manifested itself? But also, what, to what extent is this something that you feel might be more of a long-term thing? You know, because we think of galleries as competitive entities. Maybe that's a misunderstanding. But how has it changed and how can it change in the future? I think absolutely the sort of collegial spirit that's um, existed throughout these last few months, particularly between the London galleries, will continue because it benefits all of us. It's an open dialogue. Um, people exchange ideas, concerns, um, and it's everything from, you know, when we reopen the galleries, what sort of, you know, protections we're putting in place to make them welcome to visitors. Um, you know, uh, what to do, you know, people's positions and thoughts on art fairs. Do, you know, we've had uh, a lot of communication about Freeze, there were communications about Basel, and it's just a very good sort of forum to, to communicate and, and exchange ideas, and I think that will definitely continue. I'm sure you're aware the gallery set up this WhatsApp group, where, which, is, which Sadie did with um, Vanessa Carlos, and I think it's been amazing the, how people have generously contributed advice, you know, from the bigger galleries to the smaller galleries, from the east to the west. You know, I think it's really been heartwarming to see how that, um, um, and I'm sure, as Millie says, that will continue because there is a common uh, goal or also a common requirement to show art and to show artists work and that's a, a huge mission of galleries big and small and you know each gallery have their own challenges but I think by sharing those challenges with each other we hope to also learn from those um, thoughts. Can, can galleries like Gagosian provide a kind of help for the smaller galleries. We've heard very much in the recent years about the mid-level galleries going under some of the smaller galleries. There are, of course, different ecosystems within the wider ecosystem. But to what extent can, you know, if there is a collegiate atmosphere amongst galleries, can Gagosian help younger galleries, for instance, emerging galleries? Can, can that support network extend into a kind of, in a way, maintaining the entire network, as it were? I mean, we hope to, and we've tried in, in certain ways. We've had seminars both in the U.S. and here um, discussing different uh, sort of things that were on offer within the government and, and different initiatives that, that you know, people could take advantage of. Um, so we've done that throughout, and, and you know, we're open to learn and, and looking for new ways to be supportive to our community, for sure. I think sharing experiences is, 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 is hugely valuable. People do try and try it in different ways, you know, and I think what Millie describes as web webinars, which is a new, I think, a word I hadn't heard six months ago, have been really helpful, and I think people have really appreciated them. And that not only goes to the smaller galleries, but also artist studios, and, you know, how do you just deal with, the, with what's going on, you know? 
in a, in a bizarre way, going into lockdown was easy, because you just lock the door. But coming out of it is proving super complicated because the, it's the, the safety you need to provide. It's the processes also not only to put them in place, but also to communicate people and to tell your colleagues of your experiences of how you, what you do to, 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 to enable people to visit again and to, 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 to interact with the art. So you are open again. It obviously is a, is a tense moment because you, like all of us, are at the mercy of shifts to the R level and instructions from the government. Are you sort of, are you feeling optimistic though? How are you feeling about all this? I think you have to be and I think we're hugely hopeful. I mean from, the, from a public health perspective I hope it's all going in the right direction um, but um, hey, you know, they I mean, might close us down in three weeks again. I mean, who knows, you know, but I hope that we're on the right path. And I was just going to add that, you know, art is optimistic and, and it's about hope. And that's what we have to, you know, maintain to, to be able to move forward, I think, you know, while putting in place safety measures to make sure that everyone's safe and comfortable. We want people to be as relaxed when they come to visit as possible, not worry about these things. So hopefully the art is, is good enough to take you outside of, uh, you know, the worries of, of daily life. It's certainly, for me, just thrilling to actually be in the presence of sculpture again. Thank you both so much for talking to me. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Crushed, cast, constructed is at the Gagosian Gallery in Grosvenor Hill from the 15th of June to the 31st of July. We'll hear from Joe Stella Sawitska of Goodman Gallery in a moment, but first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The long-running debate on statues of Confederates in the US and slavers and imperialists in Europe has been reignited by the Black Lives Matter protests and real change seems to be afoot. The UK saw two statues of slavers taken down this week, that of Edward Colston, removed forcibly by Black Lives Matter protesters in Bristol, and a statue of another slaveholder, Robert Milligan, removed from outside the Museum of London Docklands after agreement between various authorities. There was also continued debate over the statue at Oriel College, Oxford, of the imperialist and white supremacist Cecil Rhodes. In Belgium, meanwhile, statues of King Leopold II, who's notorious for instigating a brutal colonial regime in what is now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, were also attacked and in some cases removed. As I mentioned earlier, we'll address this topic on next week's podcast. As the protest against racism and police brutality continue to dominate the news, Annie Shaw reports that a detailed technical report published by the Turner Prize-nominated art and research group Forensic Architecture could prompt the reopening of a police investigation into the shooting of Mark Duggan, a young black man in Tottenham, North London, in 2011. The killing of Duggan and the subsequent handling of the incident by police sparked some of the biggest riots in modern English history, resulting in five deaths and more than 3,000 arrests over the course of four days in August 2011. Originally commissioned by the lawyers representing Duggan's family, Forensic Architecture has spent the past year producing a video investigation and virtual reality environment using witness testimonies, videos and images, hand-drawn plans and expert reports to examine the moments surrounding Duggan's killing. And finally, the US Court of Appeals ruled that the auction house Sotheby's cannot sue the Greek government after the country demanded that an ancient equestrian statue be withdrawn from a May 2018 sale and returned to the country due to questionable provenance. The ruling, levied on the 9th of June, could have repercussions for the US antiquities market, given that it states that legal charges against the country cannot be pressed because it was not acting out of commercial interests. You can read these and a wealth of other stories at theartnewspaper.com or on the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. As collectors and art lovers look online to browse and purchase, Christie's has responded to the current climate with an expanded online-only auction calendar. This June, Christie's will present Classic Week as an online-only sales series of five auctions that includes elegant and timeless pieces from antiquities, books and manuscripts, 19th-century paintings and old-master paintings and sculpture. Discover and bid on an array of extraordinary works which exemplify harmony and restraint and define standards of form and craftsmanship. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, as we heard, London galleries have come together during the coronavirus crisis to create a network of information and support. Among those most involved is Jo Stella Sawitska, the director of the Goodman Gallery in London. And I spoke to her about what the galleries have been discussing and what comes next. Joe, 
I'm really interested in this idea of a more collegiate gallery system in London. Can you tell me something about your role in that? And, and to what extent is it collegiate? What, what sort of information is being shared? It's been really interesting to see, actually, that come together. Sadie Coles and Vanessa Carlos of Carlos Ishikawa set up a WhatsApp group at the beginning of lockdown. And over time, that group has grown to quite a significant size. I think there's just under 100 people from the gallery sector that participate in the group. And the group has become a place where people share information and resources. And what's interesting and heartening about that is that it, cu- it crosses over the sort of entire ecology. So larger galleries are sharing information um, and insights they've had from consultants or legal expertise that potentially younger galleries just wouldn't have access to. And that's been really exciting to see that kind of conversation that I think used to happen in London when it was a smaller art scene. And since the kind of, I think the kind of community has grown over the last 10, 15 years, certainly before my time at Freeze, when I was at Freeze, um, I think there was, there's been less contact between the galleries. So it's been, it's been, a, it's been a really heartening coming together. And, and I do think that community will start to define how things are shaped going forward. Can you say in what ways you think that it, that it might be defined going forward? Certainly one of the uh, big conversations the community is having at the moment is around what shape and format will the London Art Week um, come together? So if, if for example, Freeze is cancelled, how do the galleries respond? It's an incredibly important week for business. Um, what is the appropriate way to respond to that as a community? How do we put on an event in a time where we can work on much smaller numbers than we might previously have done um, without the sort of festival that accompanies a large scale event. And I think the galleries are really sort of setting the direction of that because as a community, they understand what they need to, um, to survive. One of the interesting um, points that's come out of the discussion has been about the way that London has sort of driven traction to the galleries through events in the past. And the gallery community has benefited from that. But at the same time, I think it's an acknowledgement that in the end, galleries are sustained by a small circle that's particular to each gallery's business of supporters and those are people with you who are with you in the good times and the bad. And of course, there are many supporters of a gallery over a lifespan of a gallery. But in the end, it is a very concentrated group of people. How do you create a momentum that a major event brings on these much smaller numbers? And I think it has been interesting to hear colleagues talk about their willingness to return to work and work on much more... Um, individualized basises. It's about those sort of one-on-one conversations that I think are going to be really important going forward and those relationships, but also acknowledging that there is a sense of a community event that is required to create the momentum that's needed for a major moment of business, ultimately. What's interesting, of course, about what you're saying there is Obviously, that moment, that major moment of business, the the freeze week in London and sort of different points in the season where you have a cluster of big shows that open or whatever. Um, It seems to me that obviously one of the ways in which that has thrived has been through a very international business, right? Mm, That's right. And we know that that we know that that is now going to be interrupted to a certain degree. And is there more thought amongst the galleries have you shared thoughts together about this more a more sort of local feel to to the gallery businesses if you like that's right i think we are all expecting and anticipating the season to be far more local and in the past certainly the sort of sense that freeze was the moment when the world came to london and now that we might be working in an environment where we're activating the people who are in this country um, and potentially people who are willing to travel from neighbouring countries and for whom a day trip is actually not out of the question. All of this very much depends on travel and what happens with quarantines. But it's an interesting new environment. And actually, we're very lucky in London that there are lots of international people that do spend time between London and other places. So we have an opportunity in that regard. There are people who come here for business, but people who spend half their time here. 
and hopefully that moment will be the moment when they're in town. But getting people into the galleries is really kind of going back to an old-fashioned way of working. You know, it's how it might have been 15, 10, 15 years ago before people were so reliant on fairs, where you did actually have a very strong footfall from your local clients into the gallery. And does it feel like, I mean, are you talking to your clients and finding out from them how ready they are to come back? Because we're all assuming that everybody wants to come back. But do you get a sense of, you know, is is that the case? Are your clients desperate to go back to galleries or do you think that they would want to work at a more remote distance to a certain extent still? I think it very much depends on the individual. I've certainly had a very strong indication from colleagues, professionals, for example, and also private individuals who really want to come and look at work. And the galleries have an advantage over the museums because we can operate on a bespoke basis for curators for members of the press for collectors and that's very appealing to people right now but I think time will tell it's probably too soon to see the kind of large groups that would visit the galleries in these sort of coordinated tours but can we work with individual visits and meetings and absolutely we can and I think that's very appealing to people because it creates an environment where they feel secure about their safety and the lack of exposure to other people for example. Another thing that has been a sort of crucial factor in recent discussions about the whole gallery ecosystem to a degree has been relating to how sharing resources is also a climate issue. Mm. And I wonder if that has been the subject of any of the discussions, because obviously if you're pooling resources in this WhatsApp group, you're sharing ideas. Yeah. Are you also talking about sharing shipping and sharing other... Yeah. yeah. One of the... Um, actually, during my time at Freeze, it was something we looked at quite carefully. And, and, and there's a really strong interest from the sector to find a way to try and rationalise the way we are moving freight around the world and make an effort to be more sustainable about that. And um, in the past, it's been very difficult to do that because it requires everybody to coordinate on deadlines to create consolidated shipping and um, look at kind of using materials responsibly but it's become again quite a big point of conversation in the group I think there is a really serious investment in looking at how to reduce your carbon footprint how to use different kind of packing materials and and actually putting the onus on the shippers so that they are looking to consolidate more within the gallery sector and it's been possible with fares for them to do that because of course there's one deadline and there's one location but on individual basis shipments it's much harder but there's no question in this time of elevated costs and limited flights people are going to be looking much more about slower travel you know slower travel of goods as well as people and does that mean sending things on a whim to see a client probably not I think everybody's um everybody is is responding to this moment in a very I think sensitive way and not making unrealistic expectations on when goods can arrive and understanding that actually there isn't the volume of freight that there might have been in the past. Therefore, people will wait for an appropriate moment for those things to arrive. It seems it really is a priority for galleries now to look at how they can work more sustainably together as a group. And it does it will require much more coordination to lobby the freight uh, forwarders, the shippers to look more carefully at how they consolidate gallery shipments and it that works when you're looking at one fair where everybody's looking at the same destination and same time frame but when galleries are doing individual shipments it becomes much harder and I think there's no question the way people move goods around the world will change because first of all there simply aren't the volume of flights available the costs are triple that they might have been a year ago and people are starting to think more carefully around where they keep works and for how long they keep works. And this is goes back to this point about the world becoming a little bit more localised, having works in various cities to show local collectors rather than moving things between fairs or international trade hubs. That's really interesting. And also especially interesting for a gallery like Goodman Gallery, which is a, an international gallery, perhaps with an, a slightly alternative path to, to a lot of the galleries in that it's a gallery 
you know, based in South Africa that now has a presence elsewhere. So tell me a bit about that, because I think that's a really interesting fact. You know, you've got an international artist roster. Those artists will be expecting a, a certain level of presentation of their works in certain spaces. So you have a responsibility to them. But also, as you say, the, the conditions within which you show their work have shifted. Yeah, I think I think it's we we have similar problems to some galleries, similar challenges, but very a very unique set of circumstances. And um, in many ways, because of the nature of trade routes, we have been working um, on a much more long term plan around our shipments. So we're able to feel confident that we're doing things as sustainably as we can. Everything we do goes by sea from Cape Town, there's a fantastic sea route to the UK. And um, we have, in terms of building up the London Gallery, you know, made a very long term decision about where we have stock, and plan very carefully about the movement of goods. There's a strategic advantage of having works in London, in terms of who you're able to show things to, but also making work easy to buy, let's say. But I think the artists, certainly the artists have been working for some time are aware that it's not sustainable to continue moving things around at a rate of knots and their attitudes have shifted as well as the clients I'd say and I think that's that's been a really interesting move that people are d- realize they cannot have something tomorrow and they're willing to wait and for that to arrive in a method that's both sustainable and practical and also cost effective because of course it affects the client if they're paying for the shipment. Exactly. Now, tell me about what you're doing, because obviously one of the interesting things is that, you know, yes, the June the 15th is this day when some of the galleries are opening, but others are opening staggered at different times. When is Goodman Gallery open and what, what are you going to be showing? Are you going to be continuing with something or some, presenting something new? We'll be open from the 15th of June by appointment uh, to look at specific works. It's the Basel Online Week. So that's the week when we're hoping to be seeing clients to look at specific works that are part of our presentation. But we're opening a new show, we hope, on the 9th of July, subject to shipments arriving in the UK. And that is the first exhibition of David Goldblatt in London since 1985. We discussed at great length, should we have a new show? Should we extend our current show? And I think we just felt that the time had changed so rapidly that we wanted to meet that um, challenge and actually work on an exhibition which we felt spoke to the contemporary moment. And David Goldblatt, who documented South Africa over 40 years, South Africa was his subject and all the tensions within that would be in a really fitting exhibition to host this summer. Well, good luck with that and thanks so much for talking to us thank you to check the date of the opening of the david goldblatt exhibition that joe mentions visit goodman-gallery.com and goodman gallery will present an online film program on the website of a former guest on this podcast shirin nashat that's between the 20th and the 24th of june Now, for the latest in our Lonely Works series, in which we explore art in museums that have closed because of the coronavirus, the artist Deborah Roberts has chosen a work by Benny Andrews, No More Games, from 1970, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Deborah spoke to our senior editor in New York, Margaret Carrigan, and you can see an image of the painting as they discuss it if you go to theartnewspaper.com. Click on the podcast link and look for this episode. So, Deborah, you have chosen Benny Andrews' No More Games at MoMA in New York. And I was wondering if you could kind of give us a play-by-play of what that work looks like and what struck you about it the most the first time you encountered it. Well, you know, I've been a fan of Benny Andrews for a very long time. And I've, you know, only seen the work in uh, in magazines and art publications. And I remember uh, going to MoMA um, I guess maybe five, six years ago, and when I was a graduate student at Syracuse, and the work was hanging, and I could not believe it. I, I saw it before and, and art magazines, but to see it alive in real person was amazing. Um, he was a mixed media artist like myself, 
Um, he uses found objects and materials to create a, a language about, you know, Black Americana and our place in society. And this piece um, just, just struck me. Um, I mean, No More Games, which was just so perfect. It's like he's had enough, you know, enough was enough. And it was just great. I just can't explain what it was like to see it, to see his brush strokes, to see, I mean, his movement of the paint, to see his hand in the work is just awe-inspiring. So just just to kind of set the scene for the listener, it's quite a large work, correct? Right. It's, it's, it's rel- relatively big. Um, on one, It's two panels, I think, they're put together. Mm-hmm. And um, one is it, they had, he is an African-American man who is sitting on a box with his hands on his knees and his hands are open. And the right side, he has Lady Liberty is a a female figure, uh, a white woman. And she is on the ground with the American flag draped over a majority of her body. Only the legs are showing. And, you know, there's a big hot sun in the back and, um, I guess there's the statue that or that she was on of the holding of the liberty torch is broken. You can unpack this work and talk about how and what has happened in this work and why there's a need for us to talk about it, especially now. Something I'm really struck by is, you know, even before we got into the conversation, you had mentioned that, you know, there's so many different ways to interpret what what that broken lady liberty represents. Right. And I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that, because you said, you know, as a woman looking at it, you can you can see that differently, what it means for broken dreams of liberty. Right. And just as a woman and the physical part of her laying down with her, with the flag draped over uh, the central parts of her body and this man bending over her, um, as a woman, it is it is haunting because so many times our bodies have been attacked by the other, the male, and uh, and then discarded, you know, easily. I don't think that Benny Andrews was talking about any type of sexual assault on this work, but it can be interpreted that, that it's, you know, he's done with her. He's, he's finished. Um, but I think, and this reading, and probably the way he has painted it was the way I would have painted, is that we have done everything right until we destroy and reconstruct liberty, then it would never be, you know, justice and open a, a guiding torch for all people. And I think that's what he was trying to say in this work, that he has destroyed the notion of liberty. Something else that really strikes me about this composition as well is that the black man sitting on the left side of the painting, his, the way he's holding his arms kind of open, it looks like almost something was in them. And I just wonder what your take on that is. Like, it looks like he's holding something, yet there's nothing there. Well, when I look at it, it's so weird. I think he's choked liberty. He's killed liberty, and that's the hand. The hands are open in the, in the way of, the, you know, I've, I've destroyed liberty. Or he could say, you know, I've had enough. And, you know, the palms are not open uh, to the viewer. Um, you know, it's in a kind of round circle. And, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm low to mention any type of violence in this action because, you know, this is a stereotypical idea of Black man and violence. But, I mean, in this picture, um, you know, he has like a t-shirt that he's, you can see it's torn, it's, it's ragged. Um, it's, you know, it's a camp t-shirt from someplace. Uh, he has a very sorrow look on his face. And, uh, and I think that, you know, it's just so many reads to this, but as an African-American person who lives in the United States, I understand this look, I understand this feeling. And I just want to think of it as that he's, he's like had enough and he's, he's just tired. That's certainly very resonant in this particular moment, especially if not always. Um, right. But something that perhaps given our moment in history right now, as we are seeing so many widespread protests across the U.S. and across the world uh, after the murder of George Floyd, that there is this upwelling of, 
a search for justice right in, in, in a very new and concrete way and something that looking at this image now you know i'm seeing all of this growth in the left hand side of the image as well that kind of extends back into the background of the picture that comes up through the broken flag um right. again in the, in the background and i think that is a really hopeful metaphor Do you, and I, I wondered if that was spoke to you in any way seeing that kind of like just organic growth that comes to the fore and comes up again through the back through the broken flag well, you know, I didn't see that, and I, I, that's hopeful. But you know, I I view through this work through a different lens as an African American. I don't know that I see a lot of hope in this work. I I, I see more desperation and more final straw, and 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 then the heat of the sun um, that's that's in the back that is you know really hot, and you know. If you look at the history of Benny Andrews, how he protested all the major museums, and he wore signs, he said, I am an artist, and different things like that. So you see this, this idea of you know him out there lobbying for a place in these institutions. And I'm sure that was very tiring for him, very, you know, disheartening. And so when I look at you know this thing and think about equal opportunity and um, welcoming everyone and feeling like you are, you know, part of this country, but maybe you're one of the most despised people in the country and, and you've had enough. So I see it very different through the lens, you know, as an African-American woman, I see um, this woman who may be on a pedestal, you know, this idea of the ideal woman, you know, and he's also challenged that idea by knocking it off the, you know, this pedestal. So, like I said, this work can be unpacked in, in various ways. Um, I think it, it's up to the viewer to come, to bring whatever they have to it. You know, like I said, as a woman, I see this differently, but I think when I look at this, I look at this as a black American, not so much uh, of being a, a woman. I think what you just mentioned about Benny Andrews really resisting his work being in museums writ large is a very interesting point at this juncture too, because there has been a lot of attention paid to museums over the past couple of weeks um, about just kind of the systemic racism that informs them as well. And, and, and looking at the Benny Andrews through that lens is also really interesting, you know, thinking of a work like this hanging in one of the best known museums in the world. How does that color your, your thoughts about the, the work itself and, and how black artists can resist some of the patriarchal and racist structures of the you know, colonial museum structure? Right, well, Benny Andrews did not resist it. He wanted to be a part of it. He wanted his language and his work to be a part of that dialogue. Hmm. So when he was protesting outside of MoMA and the Whitney Museum, he was asking for inclusion hmm. because at that point he was not he was not a part of it. So so I think you know when you think of white cubes and white spaces, and I think Carrie Dave Marshall talks about this also. You want to be representative in here. You have to. We are a part of America and America's history and art history and art culture. That the absence of black figures is 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 striking and um, glaring, and and wanting to be a part of it is not saying you know let me in, let me in. Is that I should always be? I should have always been a part of it, and I think that's that's what he was saying when he was out, you know, protesting for inclusion. Um, I know there's a lot of dialogue right now about. Uh, collections and bringing more African-American artists into the fold, uh, especially in this time when art is being defined and created as artifact of this particular time. It's, it's so important. You know, it's important. It, I mean, it's, this is something that should have been happening, you know, 30 years ago. It's just now happening. Um, I think that is a stain on the museum society that they have not done that. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but, you know, um, like everyone says, better late than never. And if people are having those types of conversations, I welcome them. 
I think is so very important. You know, uh, during COVID right now, a lot of museums are closed. Their revenue has been shut down. We need museums because they are, like I said, they are cultural artifacts of, of the time and, and the past and the present, you know? So uh, I'm hoping people are having these dialogues. I'm praying that they are. You said you came to this work when you were in grad school. And I just wonder, you, you, you talked a lot about the materiality of, of the painting and seeing the brush strokes and seeing the mixed media. How did this kind of help you think through what you were doing? Because I know that that's around the time you started really going hard on, on collage and whatnot. Right, right. It helped me realize I can, um, I can add more to the collages. Uh, it, it created uh, the sense that he used clothes and materials. It created a depth to the collage that I'm just now employing in my work, but having it right there in my arsenal, know that it can be done, know it can be done very well. Saying that, and I was like, damn, I didn't think about that. You know, anytime you can go to an art piece and it can teach you, it can it give you a pathway to create something maybe even down the line. It's, it, it's done its job. And so when I saw this and I saw how large it was, you know, my collages are, are not, you know, little eight by tens. They're huge pieces. And Benny Andrews, you know, he, he did a lot of mixed media. He did, it was collage. It was assemblage, you know, in his work. And he just doesn't get enough credit for it. And so it was really great for me to see this stuff and to see that I can do human forms and add, you know, the steel collage base, base to it, you know. So it was perfect. I saw his hand in the work, you know, his painting skills, his use of shape and perspective. Uh, it was it's fantastic. Perfect. Thank you so much for speaking with us about this work. Thank you for inviting me. Deborah Roberts' exhibition, simply called I'm, will open at the Contemporary in Austin, Texas in January 2021. You can find out more about No More Games at MoMA.org and you can read about how it's shown at the museum in the gallery War Within, War Without in a piece by Dale Burning Sauer for theartnewspaper.com. A link to that article is on the page for this episode on the website. And that's it for this week. You can subscribe to the Art Newspaper on the website, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the homepage and sign up for our newsletters while you're there. The link's at the top right of the page. Please also subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. You can also find us on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing. Thanks to Stefan and Millicent, to Joe, to Margaret and to Deborah. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next week to talk about statues. Bye for now. The Week in Art is brought to you in association with Christie's. Visit christie's.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.